Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one to use in one of the chair racks around you down below. As Dave mentioned, we're in a series called All In, and really it's more than just a series. It's an overall church initiative where we're exploring the idea of uh, responding individually and corporately to what God has done for us in Jesus, because uh, as we've been saying the last few weeks, uh, God has graciously gone all in for us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in loving, uh, giving, sacrificing, rescuing, indwelling, empowering us for life, and calling us to mission. And it's this mission of God that we're committed to uh, as a church locally, regionally, and globally. The all-in initiatives that David uh, just mentioned do require all of us to be uh, involved in order to accomplish them 100% uh, in. In saying that, I really want you guys to understand that All In is really not about what Parkview wants from you. It's all about what God wants for you. He wants for you to be part of something spiritually significant in the world, a cause greater than yourself. God wants for you to grow in, in your faith, in your generosity, and in your spiritual impact. In fact, I would go so far to say that God doesn't only want you to do this, he doesn't only call you to do this, but God has actually chosen you to do it. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, when I was in fourth grade, uh, I remember it very vividly. I, I tried out for our town's travel baseball team, Little League team. I, I was the last player cut from the team. And I wanted to be on that team so bad because they had these cool uniforms. And, you know, I, I, it was devastating to me. I remember the ride home in the back of a pickup truck, which you could do back then, and just being devastated not, not having been picked for the team. It was really hard. And if you have ever not been picked for something, uh, then you get what I'm talking about because it hurts not getting picked for the team or, or the squad, the choir, the school play or a promotion at work or whatever. And if you've experienced that pain of not getting chosen, then I've got something that you're going to want to hear. Because in the Old Testament, after God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he was preparing them to enter the land of promise, Moses talks to the nation on the topic of uh, having now experienced God's grace and rescue he said, how do we as God's people live in the world? And here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, Moses says this. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. He has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, the decrees, and the laws I give you today. Now, here's the deal. When Moses says to the Israelites, God has chosen you, uh, he is asserting a theological concept that's particularly difficult for people to reconcile. It's the concept raised in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, sometimes referred to as predestination or election, but basically it's the idea that if you have faith in God, it's because he chose to move in your life and to open your mind and your heart to believe. And, you know, some people read a statement like this in Scripture and really get stuck. They're confused. It's uncomfortable, understandably so. But I think if we look at the greater context of what Moses says, what Scripture teaches, and consider it all carefully, that the idea or the reality of chosenness actually produces four very positive things. Think about it. First, it produces humility. 
in God's people, or at least it should. As much as some of us might want to ignore this theological idea, we've got to face the fact that throughout Scripture, there is an unavoidable assertion that God makes choices. Uh, For example, in Genesis 18, he says, I have chosen Abraham. Second Chronicles, he says, I have chosen David. Through the prophet Isaiah, God refers to the Israelites as my chosen people, which he does several times in the Scriptures. Uh, In the New Testament, his people uh, get redefined as both Jew and Gentile, but God says the same thing. They are my chosen people. Jesus said to the disciples one day, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And on one occasion when speaking to a crowd of people, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In fact, in the book of Acts, while preaching to a large group of people, the Apostle Paul explained how Israel was chosen by God to be a light to the Gentiles. And the text says that when the Gentiles heard that, they were really glad, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, these are just a few of the more well-known references, but trust me when I tell you that over and over again in Scripture, we're taught this idea of God's choosing. In other words, if you, if I have faith, it's because God's Spirit has graciously moved in our lives. He has opened our minds and our hearts to believe. Otherwise, if I had a thousand opportunities to choose Jesus as Savior or myself as Savior, I would always choose myself, and so would you. And You know, again, a lot of people struggle with uh, this idea and and maybe react saying, you know, hey, that's arrogant, man, that's presumptuous. That's kind of elitist to suggest that God chooses you or chooses anybody. And yet that's what Scripture says. And so, you know, this is an important doctrine to at the very least recognize because, you know, we live in a world where some people who believe that they've got God on their side do some pretty awful things. Uh, A well-known Christian author and thinker, C.S. Lewis, once said, of all bad men, religious uh, bad men are the worst. I think we would probably agree with that because we all know probably too well that some religious groups who claim to have God on their side really believe that that gives them permission to condemn, to be hostile toward, violent toward those who are different, you know, to marginalize people, to to oppress them, to terrorize them even, or at worst kill in the name of their religious cause. And that's a serious problem. But here's the thing. As Christians, if this doctrine of God's choosing somehow leads us to any degree of arrogance or elitism or violence or worse, then we really don't understand the doctrine at all. Because the idea of being chosen should produce the very opposite of arrogance. It actually undercuts the right of religious people to view themselves as superior to others. If genuinely understood, this theological truth should lead us to humility. Why? Well, think of what Moses says to the people. He says, he says, the Lord didn't choose you because you were the greatest, you were the numerous of nations, right? In verse 7, he says, you were the least. You were the fewest of peoples. Here's my Reykate translation of that. God's people were his chosen people, but not the choicest people. They weren't bigger and stronger and better than others. They were worse. Again, in verse 6, Moses says, you are God's treasured possession. Not because you're special, but simply because he chose you. And for God to say, you didn't choose me, I chose you, is very humbling. It's the same as if God would say to me, look, Ray, you would never, let's just be up front, you would never have a relationship with me on your own because you're too arrogant, you're too rebellious. The only reason we have a relationship together is because of me graciously moving in your life. And so there's nothing in you that's better than anybody else. And I personally can accept that without any problems because I know it's true. And yet for others, this whole, this whole choosing thing just seems unfair. And it's hard to get over that. And unfairness, I guess that's one way to look at it. I mean, that's one perspective. But what if we thought of it a different way? What if we looked at it this way? If all human beings are deserving of God's salvation, then it's a matter of unfairness that God only chooses some. If everybody's deserving, it's unfair that God just chooses just some. If there are few people who are deserving, then it is a matter of fairness that God chooses some. But if no human being is deserving of God's salvation, 
then it's a matter of grace that God chooses any. None deserving. It's all grace. And God's choosing you or me or anybody. Are you guys tracking with that? Does that make sense? Maybe that's not helpful. So consider it this way. If you say, look, I can't really accept this idea of God's choosing. It's, it's weird. It's uncomfortable. It's un- inequitable. Uh, why, not God, why doesn't God choose any, everybody? You know, from my perspective, I got free will. I can do what I want. I'm not digging the concept. I really don't like it. And I understand that. In fact, I agree. I would agree that there are some, there are some difficulties in, in going along with accepting this theological doctrine of election or choosing. But there are even greater difficulties in denying it. But those are the only two options, accepting it or denying it. Difficulties are greater difficulties. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, think of a friend of yours or a family member who's not a Christian. Why are you a Christian and that person is not? You say, well, because, you know, I've accepted Jesus and I'm a follower of his and they haven't done that yet. Right. But why do you believe and they don't? say, well, I've recognized my own brokenness, my own failures, my own sinfulness, and I've repented and I've asked God for forgiveness, and they just haven't done that. Okay. But why do you recognize sins and they don't? You say, well, because I realize I can't be good enough. I just can't do it. And they don't see that. Right. They don't. But why you and not them? Why, why, why? See, do you see where this goes? I mean, if you believe the only difference between you and a non-Christian is God's grace, that he, he moved in your life, he opened your mind, your heart, but hasn't opened theirs yet. If that's the only difference, then you and I and all of us together, we have no basis upon which to look down on or judge others because in and of ourselves, we're no better than anybody else. But if we believe there's the difference between us and, and a non-Christian is that we're a little better, we're a little smarter, a little wiser, a little more righteous, just a little more spiritual, i.e. difference isn't in God, but in us. That's concerning because then we do have the right to turn to somebody and say, what's the matter with you? Why aren't you as good and as smart and wise and righteous and spiritual as I am? Do you follow that? I mean, listen, there's no question that there are difficulties in reconciling our sense of free will and this doctrine of, of God's choosing, but they're all intellectual. You know, why, why doesn't God choose everybody? How does he choose some and not others? You know, those are good intellectual questions, and they're troubling to a certain degree, but, but the greater difficulties of not believing in the doctrine of election are spiritual, personal, cultural, and practical. And frankly, I look at our world, and, and, and to me, there's nothing more our, wor- our, nothing more our world needs than a, than a faith that erodes the right of one person to feel or act superior over another. And the truth of God's choosing does just that, eliminates the possibility. We are who we are by sheer grace, nothing else. And make no mistake about it, religion that says, I'm a little better, I'm a little smarter, a little wiser, a little more righteous, a little more spiritual than you, is a problem. And I, you know, I wrestle with it. I wrestle with the intellectual difficulties of this doctrine of God's choosing, but I don't want to live with with the enormous problems and consequences of denying it or rejecting it, which is religious superiority. And that leads to nothing good. So you may say, well, okay, I kind of get it, but I still wonder why God doesn't choose everybody. You know, how does he, how does he decide? Does he throw darts? Does he flip a coin? I mean, it just seems so random. But, you know, just because God says his reason for choosing is not found in you or me, doesn't mean that he lacks good and just reasons for the choices he makes or doesn't make. You know, we like to, to apply our own flawed, finite analysis of the situation and conclude that if the reason for God's choosing isn't in us, well, what else could it possibly be? You know, uh, you know, as if we're the center of the universe. Why does God choose? And upon what basis are his choices? I don't know. Who is he going to choose? I don't know. But just because I don't know doesn't mean God is capricious. At the end of the Apostle John's biography of Jesus, he, he tells a, an interesting, uh, shares an account of when Jesus was telling Peter that 
Peter was going to be martyred. As Peter hears Jesus tell him that, Peter looks around and looks at John. And he says, well, what about him? And Jesus said, well, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. And here's the point. God only tells us about ourselves. If you believe it's because of grace alone that God has chosen you, that he has moved in your, your heart, your mind, your life, then humbly follow him. Say, so, yeah, but what, what about everybody else? What does that have to do with you? Trust that God knows what he's doing. He's got his reasons. Um, I don't know what they are. Although I will say there seems to be some insights to God's wisdom and justice uh, related to it. I mean, remember, James wrote the early church, and James says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? Doesn't the Apostle Paul write the early church and say, you know, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one, no one may boast before him. Paul and James both tell us that God, God tends to choose the poor, weak, simple, simple, unsophisticated, just average men and women, the kind of people the world likes to reject, overlook, and write off. And if that is the case, then that seems fair and just to me. But it's really a mere hint of his reasoning. All we know for sure is that God's choosing is about grace and grace alone. And when we understand that, when we really understand that, it doesn't lead to arrogance or elitism, but the opposite. It leads to a deep and genuine humility before God and before everybody else. But it also leads us to 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 be a unique community. Moses indicates in verse 6 that the purpose of God's choosing is for us to be a people holy to the Lord. And the term holy means separate or distinct or different. And Moses' reference to people in the plural implies a, a corporate aspect to our faith and to our lives. You know, if we've been chosen by grace, it's not to be alone. God intends for you and me to be together, to connect, to be part of a group that is distinct from the world around us. Side note here, you know, one of our all-in initiatives has to do with renovating our facility. Understand, it's this idea of community that's behind that. We, we, we want to create a physical environment that intentionally fosters more relational connection between the growing number of children and families and students and adults who show up here during the week, and especially the number that show up here on Sundays. In an increasingly isolated culture, we need to provide space for people to connect both with God and with each other. The space is not about nicety. It's about necessity. It's not just about convenience. It's about connection. We want to do whatever we can to foster that kind of connection, that kind of community, because that's what God has called us to. He's called us to connection. He's called us to community, uh, to be a community of men, women, students who, who are distinct. Distinct how? Well, I was thinking about that, and, and, and it seems to me that when you think of the world, the world is, the world is built around self-promotion. It's built around power, greed, survival of the fittest. But when we experience the grace of God, that grace transforms us, and together we become a, a community built around grace. Not on self-promotion, but self-sacrifice. Not power, but service. Not greed, but generosity. Not survival of the fittest, but caring for the weakest. And that kind of grace-oriented community, because it is so distinct, it is so different, draws the attention of the world and provides a living, loving, breathing example of who God is. In fact, the Apostle Peter wrote the early church, and he said to Christians in the church, he said, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And it's fascinating to me that Peter calls us chosen people, a royal priesthood, because priests in the Old Testament were mediators. They were the way through which men and women could come to know God. They were, they were connectors. And Peter is saying that we, through the beauty of our 
our corporate life together have been chosen to connect people to God. The world will see and come to know who God is through the beauty of our relationships. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, you know, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Unfortunately, that's not happening in a lot of places. And yet God's desire is for his chosen people, the church, to, to be that kind of a community through which the world sees, experiences, and connects to Jesus. That's the plan for outsiders to look at us, to look at the church and say, man, I have never seen anything like that before. People from different races and different socioeconomic levels and political bents and differing opinions all getting along. You know, those who have money and resources share with those who don't. Look at the compassion of those people, how they sacrifice for each other, how they sacrifice for strangers, how they forgive each other. Look at how they laugh and cry together and support one another, how they're patient and kind, how they have this sense of purpose in life. I want to be part of that kind of community. How do I do it? Moses said it. Peter said it. Jesus said it. We're called to be a holy, distinct people, which means you can't be holy by yourself. By his grace, God has chosen each of us to be part of this, this, a community different from anything our world has ever seen for the purpose of glorifying God and connecting people to him through Jesus. And so this idea, this reality of chosenness should produce humility and should lead us to be be a grace-filled community, and it should provide uh, us security. You think about the logic of Moses in verses 7 and 8. He says, The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, but it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out and redeemed you. See what he's saying here? It's a bit circular, but Moses is saying, look, the Lord didn't love you and redeem you because you were great and smart and better. No, 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 no. The Lord loved you just because he loved you. And that kind of unconditional love is what every single human being is looking for. That's what they're longing for. Every now and then, my wife Margie and I get in a conversation where we're reflecting on our aging. And in the context of some of those conversations, she'll say, will you love me when I'm old? I've learned over the years there's a right way and there's a wrong way to answer love-oriented questions. For example, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to guys here because as being a guy, look, uh, if your significant other ever asks you this, why do you love me? Do not do this. Do not say, I love you because you're a smoking hot babe. No, that's not going to be good. Because they're going to say, well, what happens when, when we grow old? Say, well, okay, well, you know, I love you because, because you're healthy and athletic. Well, what if I get sick or injured? Well, you know, I love you because you have a really good sense of humor. Well, what if I go through a season of depression? What's, re- well, what's really important? What's really important is your character. You're good. You're a good, honest person. Well, what if I have a moral lapse? You see, the, the, the trouble with all those answers to the question of why do you love me is that you're not loving her for her, but for certain products that benefit you. And so she's left wondering, what if the products, what if the benefits don't come? And gets upset saying, you know, you're not loving me. There are a lot of friendships and relationships and marriages that are conditioned upon benefits. You love a person for what they provide you. And yet the deepest longing of every human heart is to have someone look you in the eyes and say, I love you just because I love you. I love you with all your strengths and your weaknesses, your victories and your failures, your ups and downs, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. But here's the deal. In this world of ours, there is no source of that kind of love. Even the best marriages, the best friendships, the best relationships are somewhat conditional. Why? Because every human being is needy. We're all needy. God is the only being in the universe without needs. And therefore, only God can say and does say, I love you, not because you're greater, stronger, better, worse, smarter, more honest, prettier, anything like that. He says, I love you just because I love you. And if you believe that God says that to you and that he means it, there is nothing more secure upon which to build your life. Moses says, God is 
is faithful and he loves to a thousand generations. And yet someone could say, well, how can that be true? I mean, I'm so imperfect. I mess up. I fail God. I fail others. And besides, look at what he says next. In verses 7, 8, God, he says God loves you because he loves you. And then comes verse 9, 10, 11. Love God, keep his commands or he will destroy you. So be careful. That's confusing. In fact, throughout Scripture, God says, I am holy and just and righteous and cannot tolerate sin and and evil, and so you must obey me or I will judge you and destroy you. On the other hand, throughout Scripture, we hear God saying, I love you because I love you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never let you down. I'll never let you go. Which is it? Which Which is it? And it's not until we look at the cross of Jesus do we get the answer. Is the love in favor of God conditional or unconditional? Ultimately, the answer has to be it is and it isn't. Yes and no, both and neither. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was destroyed. And yet he came and fulfilled all that Moses said about obeying every command, decree, and law. He was the only person to ever do it and do it perfectly. The, the only one to actually deserve divine love and favor, yet he suffers innocently. For what? For our disobedience. He's judged for our sin, destroyed in our place. You see what that means? It means that Jesus fulfilled the conditions so God can love us unconditionally. So he can say, I love you just because I love you. One of the implications of that for me is then when I look at the commands of God, I take them seriously and I I can't just blow them off because I realize how important they must be that Jesus had to die as a result of humanity's disobedience to them, my disobedience. I I take God's commands seriously, but at the same time I realize that if and when I fail, the conditions have been met. So God can love me unconditionally. He loves me just because he loves me. And that kind of love, you know, the Apostle John says, that kind of perfect love drives out fear. It makes me secure in who I am and what I'm doing, where I'm going. And it then produces courage. It gives me the spiritual audacity to go all in and attempt great things for God and his kingdom. When we understand the good news of God's grace, it motivates neighbor-embracing love. It inspires sacrificial giving. It empowers fearless risk-taking. Well-known pastor and author and theologian, Dr. John Piper, has recently written a book called um, Risk is Right, Better to Lose Your Life Than to Waste It. In the book, Piper uh, argues that as Christians, we should be absolutely tenacious, tenacious in pursuing the mission he's give, God has given us in our world. We should be moving forward with, God, with God-sized visions. He says we should be fearless in the face of risk because we realize that in Christ, even death is reward. And so he asserts in the book that in the light of our world's need for God, retreat is undeniably wrong. Piper puts it this way. He says, if our single all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk and risk is right. To turn from it is to waste your life. I thought about that, and I agree. And so I'm willing to risk for the kingdom. Are you? Listen, I wanted to talk to you about all this today, not because I thought you'd get a kick out of tossing around a theological idea that's hard to reconcile, Uh, but I brought it up Because I want to remind us that what we're involved in here as a church has purpose to it. God is unfolding his plan of redemption in this world of which we are part. And we're not here by accident. We're not here by dumb luck. God has chosen you. He has chosen me. He has chosen all of us to make a difference here and now. I don't fully understand it all, but it's true. And that choice is all about his grace, nothing else. And remembering that keeps us humble. It moves us to be a grace-oriented community. It provides an amazing sense of security and generates the kind of courage we need to take risks, knowing that no matter what, in Christ, God loves us just because he loves us. 
And he's the only one who can. He's the only one who does. And I am convinced that our world, locally, regionally, globally, is looking for that very thing, unconditional love. It is our God-given responsibility as his chosen people, his church, to bring news of that love along with a demonstration of it to as many people as possible. Now is our chosen time to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, there are, there are things in your, your word that we read and learn, things that Jesus said that are easy to understand, that are pleasant to hear and uh, create no inner conflict in us. And then there are other things that are really difficult to hear. Um, they're hard to understand. They're challenging for us to grasp and apply. And this idea of your choosing is one of those things, Lord, that perhaps this side of, this side of heaven we're never going to fully understand, even, we, even though we may really want to. In our finite humanness, we just can't grasp it all. And we recognize that you are God, we are not. You have your reasons for things that we cannot fully understand. But we also know that all that you do for us, all that you in us, is a matter of grace, not deserving. It's all about grace. That you gave us Jesus to live the life we could never live and die the death we deserve to die so that you can love us unconditionally, so that you can love us just because you love us. And so we take time this morning to remember Jesus for what he has done and what he means for us uh, as your chosen people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.